we find ourselves again in the book of 2 Timothy, the, the second of the pastoral epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young son in the faith, Timothy. And this morning, what we are going to see is a, a call for us, a command for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to do this, to remember the gospel. No doubt Timothy already knew the gospel. But I believe that Timothy is like the rest of us, and at times our memory is not so good. I'm reminded of this every time my daughter Kylie asks me to play memory. That oh-so-wonderful game that involves 50 cards spread out on our table, all turned upside down, and, and then you flip over two cards, and then you're supposed to remember what the other person flipped over. And, and out of those 25 matches, generally I get about three. And if Kylie and I were playing alone, she would get 22. If my wife, praise the Lord, would join us, that helps us kind of battle Kylie together. And, and yet, even if you combined our, our two counts, we still... I don't think would beat Kylie most of the time. All of that to say that that exposes my weakness in memory. I've tried all sorts of different tactics, trying to break it up into little subgroups. You know, okay, that's in that quadrant there. That's three over and that's four down. By the time it gets to me, I have no idea what that even meant. But we all recognize the importance of memory, don't we? Particularly as we weather the storm of old age. That it is helpful, it is needful to, to engage our minds and, and, and to do things, whether we're talking about little, little math problems or we're talking about crossword puzzles or what have you. It's, it's good to keep our minds active so that our minds just don't become kind of stagnant. And if, well, that's helpful physically, then we must also recognize that using our minds and remembering what the Lord has done for us, remembering, rehearsing the gospel also is oh so good for our own spiritual growth, for our own spiritual life, for our vitality and our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul is ending his life, what we have seen time and time again actually is this idea of remembrance. Remember, remember, remember. Let's open up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. As this morning we'll be looking at verses 8 to 13. But by means of kind of hitting this gong of remember, 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 we've seen suffering again and again and again in 2 Timothy chapter 1. But let me just walk through what, what we see here and. 2 Timothy chapter 1, even before we get to verse 8 in chapter 2. Verse 3, chapter 1. What does the Apostle Paul say to Timothy? Hey, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly, what? Remember you in my prayers night and day. I remember you, Timothy, in my prayers. I remember the forefathers. I remember Abraham. I remember Isaac. I remember Jacob. I remember Joseph. I remember Moses. And their walk with the Lord. 
I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you. That's another way of him saying, hey, I remember how you were raised. I want you to remember how you were raised. How God's grace was poured out on you through your mom and through your grandma. I remind you, verse 6, to kindle afresh the gift that God has given you through the Holy Spirit. Remember, you were given this gift. Now use it, Timothy. Again and again and again. Then in verse 13, it's not translated as remember, it's translated as retain, but it's the same idea. Remember and hold on to it. Retain what? What I've taught you. The, stand, the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now he goes back to this theme of remembrance again, starting in verse 8, chapter 2. And look at who he says to remember here. This is oh so telling. Why? Because we are so prone to forget. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help this morning. We don't want to miss what you have for us in your word. We want to think rightly about you, about us, about your salvation, about your glorious gospel. So remind us of the things you want us to remember this morning and allow us not to just hear it this morning and then leave and forget about it as as a man who forgets what he looks like in the mirror as James talks about. But write your word, engrave it upon our hearts this morning that we might leave here this morning with a better appreciation, a grander, a greater love for you, a greater devotion to want to spend time with you, Lord Jesus, to want to remember you as our Savior. And a greater amazement of the power that is seen in your gospel and a greater hope in the promise that you have given us through your gospel. So be honored, be glorified, allow your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, our guide, not me, Lord. May you use your word as it is, a sharp, double-edged sword, to cut deep into us, Lord, to humble us, and to allow our hearts to overflow with joy and appreciation for all that you have done and all that you have given us in Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, in the beginning of chapter 2, we saw how the grace of God 
given to Timothy and to Paul in Christ Jesus was the strength. That, that is where the strength is found, and, and it is only in that strength that is found in the grace of Jesus that we then can act as these three examples that the, the Apostle Paul brought before Timothy. The example of the soldier, the example of the athlete, the example of the farmer, each having to do as we saw with an aspect of suffering, that our lives are not going to be easy. Our lives actually demand, require suffering to some extent. And what was so encouraging about the athlete, about the soldier, about the farmer, is that each of them also gives us a promise of, of, of something in the future. A reward that would be given to us if we are indeed faithful. And all of that was pointing to the strength that is found in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And now as he gets into 8 to 13, he switches gears a little bit. And now he's going to speak about the grace that is found in Jesus Christ in the glorious gospel. And he wants Timothy to not forget this. Don't forget about Jesus. I know it sounds trite. I know it sounds awfully simplistic, awfully easy, but is it not easy to forget about Jesus? And that is what the Apostle Paul is urging Timothy as he looks to the end of his life that could happen at any moment. He is telling Timothy, remember, remember, remember. I want you to remember the gospel. First, I want you to remember the person of the gospel. It's not a thing. It's not an idol. It's not just theology. It's more than theology. It's theology that's based upon a man, the man, the God-man. Do not forget that. I am coming close now to being united with him, Timothy. So remember the person of the gospel. Second, Timothy, remember the power of the gospel. Don't think it's about you. Recognize it's about him. And in that, you will find all the strength and all the encouragement and all the confidence that you need to Boldly proclaim this gospel everywhere that you go. Until you find yourself like me in chains. Until you find yourself like me in the last breaths of your life, knowing that you have been faithful. And that this power that is the power to save you is also the power to keep you. And the power to transform you. And third, remember the promise of the gospel. All that we have in Christ. Remember the hope that you have. So that's where we're going, because that's where the Apostle Paul goes, and that is where the Lord wants us to go this morning. I pray that this is an encouragement to you, as I have found it just this, this sweet, refreshing time of being reminded, first, of the person of the gospel. Look at where Paul starts. Remember Jesus Christ. Notice verse 3, he talks about Jesus as Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1, the grace that is in what? Christ Jesus, again and again. Back to verse 13, chapter 1, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. He's setting Jesus first and foremost as the Messiah. Here he switches. Why? Because he wants to remind us right from the starting gate, hey, we are talking not about just theology, we're talking about a person. This is who we worship. This is who we walk with. This is a relationship. Don't forget Jesus Christ. And then of all the places to go, he could go to the atonement. 
He could go to, to how Christ bled and died for us. But he doesn't. Notice where he goes first and foremost after that. He goes to this. Jesus Christ as what? The only person who has risen from the dead. Well, I know you could quote Lazarus. You could give me some stories about people that have risen sort of back from the dead after being dead sort of for 15 minutes, 10 minutes, and, and all of that. No, this is entirely different. Dead for three days, never to die again. The Greek is stronger than, than just arisen from the dead. The Greek is he was raised at one particular day in the past and it still has consequences to today, right now, here as we stand in this room, or I stand, you sit, the Lord Jesus Christ is risen. He is still alive. He is still raised. And in a hundred years from now, I'm assuming I'm going to be gone. But if I'm not gone and the Lord decides, and I, I don't know if I call this grace or not, for me to be living when I'm 152 years old, I, I, yeah, at least then I'd get like in the Guinness Book of World Records. But no matter what, if I am alive in 100 years, whoever is alive in 100 years, do you know what? This is going to be exactly the same truth statement as it is here. Jesus was raised from the dead on that day, never to die again. That is the hope of the resurrection. That is where he starts. Are you tempted, like I am, to only remember Jesus and his resurrection, say, on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday? And then after that, it's like, well, yeah, yeah, oh, I'll come back around to that again sometime. Or perhaps on communion, as we come to the Lord and we remember what he did for us. Oh, yes, th th then we remember, what, what about every day? That's what Paul is encouraging. No, he's commanding Timothy to do. Remember Jesus Christ and remember that he is the risen one. Do you know what makes the gospel oh so good? It is this. It is the resurrection. That is what makes the gospel so good. If the resurrection doesn't happen, then the gospel isn't good. Because we have no hope. But if the resurrection is indeed true, which it is, then we among all people are blessed beyond blessing because of this incredible truth. Turn with me to Ephesians. Look, look at how Paul writes about it in Ephesians. How he calls this, this resurrection and the power that happens through the resurrection. And that same power is the power that raises us from the dead as well. He calls it the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. It is so sweet. But the fact that he prays that the Ephesian believers would understand this, no doubt having already heard about it over and over again from the Apostle Paul, reminds us that we are what? We're bad at the game of memory. When it really matters. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, not ours, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's where Paul starts. Remember, he's a person. Remember, he's alive. And so will you, if you believed in him, if you trusted in him as your savior. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians. This isn't in your notes. Write down 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. Come back and spend time in 1 Corinthians 15. It is a glorious chapter. 20 to 22 kind of encapsulates what that chapter is all about. It's this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He was the first one to raise. We all likewise will follow. For since by a man came death, speaking of Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. For in, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It's all because of the resurrection. We don't have the resurrection, we don't have anything. But remember, this is a personal Savior. That's why Mary wouldn't let go of him. On that resurrection day. Is that your attitude? Towards the Lord. Do you see him as this personal. Savior of yours. Or do you get lost in. In all of the what's. What he did. Instead of who he is. Notice. He emphasizes this even more in 2 Timothy. That he is a person. Why? Because he ties it in with what the scripture says about who the Messiah was going to come from, what particular lineage. He was what? The descendant of David, according to my gospel. We know from the scripture, it's, it's throughout the Old Testament, that when the Savior comes, he was going to come through the lineage, the line, the family of David. This should relate to us. This should allow us to understand, hey, just as you have a great-great-great-grandfather, so did Jesus Christ. And you know who, who his great-great-great-grandfather was? It was King David. That's to fulfill the Scripture. That's to prove that Jesus was the rightful heir of that, the one that would be the coming Messiah. That makes sense. That was all part of God's plan. But the mere fact that he comes from a man points to the fact that he is a man. That can relate with us. That brings us into a relationship with him. And then he says this, according to my gospel, my evangelion, the good news. But not Paul's own personal idea about the gospel. Paul couldn't tweak it and change it however he wanted, even though he called it his own. Why did he call it his own? Because the Lord Jesus Christ had given it to him. And so he was protecting it, holding it at all costs, making sure that it wouldn't change, that it was exactly as Jesus had given it to him. And that is what we must do. 
And even though he does not mention the atonement, the shedding of blood, it is understood that whenever Paul talks about the gospel, that he is talking about the shedding of blood as well. He's talking about the atonement. He's talking about Christ on the cross. He's talking about what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-4. to 4, For what I received, speaking of the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ, I passed on to you. That Christ died for, or I'm sorry, passed on to you as of first importance. Hey, you can't compromise on this. Corinthians, you guys are compromising. You can't compromise on this. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. He's basing everything on the word of God so that we would know that the word of God is what saves. The gospel. And then look at verse 9. For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. It would almost seem like he's bragging a little bit. That he's saying, hey, look, 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 I'm, I'm still in jail. But he's not doing that at all. What he's doing is he's using the chains that are around his legs and his imprisonment as basically an opportunity to point to something oh so much greater, oh so much grander than him. He's telling Timothy, oh yes, I understand. You see, they can chain us up, Timothy. They, they've chained me up, you know that. I'm chained right now and they might chain you up. They can silence me, they can close my mouth, they can stop me. They can make it illegal for me to proclaim this message, but I'm still not going to stop, just as Peter and the apostles didn't stop. But they can stop us, but you know what they can't stop? You know what they can't chain, Timothy? It's right there. It's the gospel. It's the word of God. No matter what they try to do, they cannot stop it. They cannot chain it. They cannot confine it. They can't render its power useless. That's what he's talking about. He's letting them know that this is the gospel. But notice what he says, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. When he says for which, that points to the message. That, that points to the fact that when we talk about the gospel, we, we talk about the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and we should. But this phrase that is translated in my New American Standard, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, could have also been translated instead of for which, for whom. Pointing directly and personally back to Jesus Christ, letting Timothy and all of us know this morning, Paul is not just thinking about this in some sort of theological paradigm. That it's all about sin. It's all about holiness and repentance. No, he recognizes this is about a person who bled and died for me. This is about a person, the Son of God, perfectly God, perfectly man, 100% God, 100% man. And you know what, Timothy? I am coming so close now to meeting him. And it's clearer than it's ever been in my entire life that this is about him. And I want to praise him. And I want to worship him. Timothy, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow my example, and I want you to be all about the person of the gospel. You see, Paul wouldn't let himself forget the gospel, and he didn't want Timothy to forget it either. 
And as such, the Lord doesn't want us to forget about the person of the gospel as well. Do, do you find yourself just stopping and considering the fact that one day you will be with the Lord Jesus Christ? And at that point, your, your eyes of faith will be exchanged for real eyes. And that as the Lord Jesus Christ was held by Mary, that he will be able to hold you. And you will enjoy the sweetest embrace ever from the one who took your place, if you trusted in him, for the one that laid his life down for you, for the one who suffered agonizing the wrath of God placed upon him. And you will see the scars, and they will forever remind us of his love for us. That, that's what I believe Paul is getting at when he's telling Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, also remember the power of the gospel. It's seen first at the end of verse 9, but, but the word of God is not imprisoned. You can't imprison the word of God. You can't chain it up. You can't stop it. As I said, many have tried before. Church history is full up of different individuals who tried to stop the gospel. They tried to stop the word of God. They actually tried to burn every word of God that was on the face of the planet. They actually tried to stop Christianity. Some of the emperors, some of the Roman emperors. Trajan, Diocletian, the French philosopher Voltaire. Do you know what Voltaire said? He said, hey, in a hundred years, the Bible's going to be gone. It's going to be destroyed. And Christianity, done. Was he right? No, we're testimony that, that, that he was more than wrong. What, why is that? Because the word of God will last forever. And, and more importantly, because you can't fight with God and win. You can't. It will not happen. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but what? But my words shall not pass away. You see, God's word cannot be chained. It cannot be held back as much as they would like to. And in the end, his word endures. And we see next, that is where the Apostle Paul goes. As he says, but the word of God is not in prison. Then he says this, and for this reason, because the word of God is the power to save. Romans 1.16, for I am, ashamed, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is what? The power of God for everyone who believes. The Jew first and then the Greek. And he says, for this reason, because of the gospel, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. He says, this is the reason why we do this, Timothy. We suffer for the sake of the gospel, but not just for the sake of the gospel itself, but for the sake of those who will listen to the gospel and believe. Those who hear and respond. Those who respond in repentance. And what does he call those people? The chosen. 
listen, I, I recognize that this is a, a difficult doctrine, that God chooses some. But do you know what this word literally means in the Greek? It's pertaining to those who have been selected among a group. That there are some that have been selected, chosen. Other places it's, it's translated the elect. That God is seen as the active one in choosing to save us. It's not as much about us as we tend to think it is. It's about him. And if he didn't reach in and extend this gift to us and, and, and give us everything, where would we be? It is the powerful gospel which transforms lives and takes someone from death to life. That the chosen may be saved. This is seen throughout Scripture. I could take us to a whole bunch of different places, and I recognize this is difficult to grasp, if, particularly if you've never heard this before. But this is what Scripture teaches. I, I could take us to Romans 8, 28 to 39. I could take us to Romans 9. I could take us to, to John 6, 65. We could go to Ephesians chapter 1. But where I want to go this morning is Matthew 22. So if you can kind of keep your thumb in 2 Timothy chapter 2, turn to Matthew 22. And I believe this to be a beautiful depiction of what the Apostle Paul is talking about. That many are called, but only a few are chosen. Meaning the invitation extends to all, but God only chooses a few. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, then you can rejoice in this parable that one day we will join with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb as Jesus will be our groom and we will be His bride. Look at what Jesus says. And Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, that's God the Father, who gave a wedding feast for his son. That's God the Son, that's Jesus. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. That's like us. I mean the slaves if you are a born-again believer. Invited to the wedding feast and look at how they respond and they were unwilling to come. And again he sent out other slaves. Perhaps that's another generation. Maybe getting closer to us. Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock. All are all, are all, they're all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went their, own, they went their way, one to his farm and another to his business. And, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. We could look at the prophets of old and see that represented not listening to what they would say on behalf of God. But look at what the king does next. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who, are, who, who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets, and they gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding half and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. 
But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw, throw him into the outer darkness, into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, speaking of hell. For many are called, but few are chosen. There's that word again, chosen. When we see that phrase, many are called, that is the, the general call, the general invitation to salvation. Meaning the gospel goes forth, and as the gospel goes forth, as we see in, in several examples here, the responses are different. And some, in the way that they respond, they reject the gospel. They don't have time for it. They're unwilling to come. They decide, no, I'm going to keep doing what I do. I'm going to keep working the way that I was working before. Others actually step it up a couple notches, and they actually turn on those who are sharing the good news with them. This is all represented in those that, are, that, that have heard the general call but have not responded in faith and repentance. Culminated in this man in verses 11 and 12 that, that seems to be so difficult to understand. What is, what is he doing there? Notice, what, what is the clarifying, qualifying emphasis of this man? He does not have wedding clothes. He is not what? The elect. He is not the chosen from the Lord. So he is there thinking that he belongs. That's telling. This could be someone here this morning. It's been coming to church for so long. And they've got it mixed upside down. They think it's about what they do instead of what Jesus did. They've never truly believed. And they're going to have a very rude awakening when this life is done. Don't let that be you. Turn to the Lord in repentance today. For many are called, but few are chosen. Does that mean that the, that the way that we present the gospel is that somehow we have some sort of you know, special chosen detector? So as we go around, we, we ask the Lord, okay, reveal to me if, if, this, if this is one of the chosen. And dee, 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 dee. Okay, well, then I'll give that person the gospel, but I'll stay away from all of them because obviously they're not. No. This is why we share the gospel with any and all that come into our own sphere of, of relationships and opportunities. This is why we traveled all the way to Papua New Guinea to share with those people in the tribe in the far reaches of nowhere about the Lord Jesus Christ and what He came to do and how He came to die upon the cross. Recognizing that, man, are the, is the entire village going to be saved? I don't know, Lord. It could be that we invest all of these years in here as has happened in different locations in Papua New Guinea where after 20 years there's only two or three believers. But you live, leave that up to the Lord. For He is the one who is doing the choosing. We are the ones that are being faithful. And if you find yourself on this side, then you rejoice that God has chosen fit to save you in your sins. Amen? 
do I fully understand this and grasp this? Are you kidding? This is, this is beyond good, but beyond me and my total understanding of everything. But I know that this is what God's Word says, and as a result, it fills me with so much joy. And it also fills me on the other side with, with the desire to want to share Christ with everyone. And notice what they obtain. They also, that they may not only understand, they are the chosen, that they are believers, but that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. This word here, to obtain, is, is to obtain something that is just out of reach. That you can't attain by yourself. That you need help. And we all need help. And that's what the message of the cross is. That's what the message of the gospel is. That's why there is power in the gospel and in nothing else. To transform us and to change us from the inside out. And with it, eternal glory. Are you kidding me? We get to share in the eternal glory of God to some degree. That should not be the case. Well, the case should be that we should not be welcomed in as sons and daughters either. It's all grace. So first, remember the person of the gospel and the gospel itself. Second, remember the power of the gospel, that it, that it gives salvation to those who of themselves are incapable of receiving this gift. And then finally, remember the promise of the gospel. That is where the Apostle Paul goes last in verses 11 to 13, going back to 2 Timothy. He keeps putting the gospel in front of Timothy and telling him, remember, remember, remember. Man, it is the power to save. It saved you. It can save others. It will save others. It's God's plan. It's God's will. Remember the person of the gospel. Don't forget Jesus. Be devoted to Him, Timothy. And then finally, the promise of the gospel. It is a trustworthy statement. This phrase is used five times in the pastoral epistles, but nowhere else. And what follows this phrase every time is some sort of solid doctrinal truth that many believe actually was a creed in the early church that they would say together. In this particular truths that are expressed by Paul. They have, they have a positive aspect and a negative aspect. He starts with a positive. And he says, remember this, Timothy, for if we died with him, we also will live with him. Why? Because of the glorious gospel and that incredible resurrection that Jesus is alive, and so you will be too. In fact, Timothy, you must understand that you've already died. And as I'm dying here in this cell, I recognize that one day and one day soon, it could be hours from now, I'm going to trade in these eyes of faith and I'm going to receive eyes of reality. Doesn't mean he's going to have received his resurrection body yet, but he's going to be ushered into the presence of the Lord. So I believe on one aspect, what is Paul talking about that he's died? He's, he's looking at the reality of his situation right here, right now. That unlike when he was in jail before in prison, where he knew that he was going to be released, as he talks about in Philippians, here he, he knew that it was done. That his life was just about to end. And as he looked at that, he said, but there is no end.
And in this, he's reminding us of, of what we know, and what we see in Revelation 20 about the second death. Second death isn't for believers. Being eternally separated from God, that's for the unsaved. That's for those demons and for Satan that followed him. That's for the Antichrist. That is where they will spend all of eternity in eternal torment along with any other unsaved person who does not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. But Paul isn't just talking about physical death. He's talking about what we know from Romans chapter 6, verses 4 to 7. What is known as the baptism of the Spirit. No, not water baptism. That's a picture of what happens when we are saved. That we are taken from death and brought into life. The baptism of the Spirit is where the Holy Spirit comes and, and He identifies us with Christ. And really the greatest exchange ever made. Where Christ suffers in our place, taking our sin upon Him. And God the Father nailing that sin upon the Son. For all of us that would believe in Him, that our sin is nailed there on Jesus on that cross. Why? So that we don't have to spend forever in hell. Jesus paid for us. But then what's just as remarkable, probably even more remarkable, is what happens on the other side. That we are then credited with His righteousness. We are given the very righteousness of Christ and His perfection so that we might be able to enjoy an eternity with God. Why? Because God is holy and we are not. That is what he's talking about. And Paul remembers that, no doubt, as he's looking at the end of his life, that the reality is about to really sink in now and hit him to where he will be with Christ soon. So if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Endure here is to hold your ground in times of affliction. And notice what it says. Again, grace upon grace. Are you kidding me? We will reign with Him? That doesn't mean that we will reign as Him. There is no other. He is the King of kings. He is the one that will reign on the throne of David for eternity. The literal throne of David. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I will not reign on the throne of David. You're not going to take His seat. But in one of the most marvelous manifestations of His grace, we will reign. And that, again, speaks to what He's talked about earlier and what kind of soldier, what kind of athlete, what kind of farmer you are. Whether or not you've been faithful. But then look at where He goes next. And this is where things become negative. Honestly, Horrific. As look at the second half of verse 12, if we deny him, he will also deny us. This is looking forward to a time, a specific time in the future where there's this reckoning for the sake of Christ. And when that reckoning happens, this particular person says no. This isn't like Peter who denies Christ later to be restored. This is the person who is never restored. This is the person who says, nope, I, yeah, when I, when I was a kid, that worked for me. But now, no, I, no, I, I just, man, I, re, I renounce all that. And I'm going to do it this way, my way. 
How do I know this isn't talking about a believer? Because Jesus will never deny his own. So this is talking about someone who denies the Lord. It's implied that before they weren't denying the Lord, but some sort of situation happens, and then they're called upon to make a choice. Are you going to deny him or are you not? And they say, easily I'm going to deny him. Why? Because they're not truly saved. This fits along with John 15, 5 to 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Or Matthew 10, 33. Matthew 10, 33. Whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Held in such stark contrast with with what Jesus says about those that the Father gives him. Notice it's the Father that gives him. Again, speaking of being chosen, that it's God's will, not ours. doesn't look down the portals of time and see that you believe as if God's not sovereign and not in control of all things. No, he, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. No question about it. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's a verse that we should all applaud about. <laughs> we should rejoice in. Because that's how great the Father's love is for us and our risen Lord and Savior. And then look at verse 13. Going along with this idea of denying Him that He will deny us is... This other aspect, if we are faithless, that means without faith, devoid of faith, no faith. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is speaking of those that never truly believed. They never truly had saving faith. Why? Because it was not given to them. But notice what what it's saying about the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is what makes this verse so scary. That it doesn't matter. That Jesus is faithful. And he's faithful on both sides of the pendulum. On the one hand, as John 6.37 says, he's faithful to those of us who have believed that he will not cast us out. That he will not abandon us. Why? Because we are his rightful possession. We are his children. But to anyone that is not in Christ, to anyone that has rejected him, to those that do not have true saving faith, he remains faithful. Remains faithful to what? Faithful to be the judge of judges, of all judges, to be the faithful of all and their sin. Turn with me to John chapter 3. And what is definitely the most famous passage of Scripture? John 3.16. But I want to take us past John 3.16 as a way of kind of closing this morning. And seeing that while it is true, the purpose for Jesus' coming was to save. He didn't come to condemn. But the reality is, through Him coming, what is understood that a result of his coming to save is that those that will not be saved are what? They're condemned. And that is why these verses are oh so telling. And I would ask you to consider 
which group you are aligned with. And notice the condition upon salvation. What must happen in order for someone to be saved? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that what? Whoever believes in him. There is a condition. You must believe in him. Shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world. Amen. But that the world might be saved through him. But then look at what he says. He who believes in him is not judged. Again, amen, but look at this. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the, na- in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Have you responded to the light? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as the Savior, the saving God that he is. Perfectly 100% man, 100% God. Have you trusted in him? Have you believed in him? Hey, since I still have a little bit of time, points to ponder number two this week. How do you rehearse the gospel to yourself? What does that look like? How do you rehearse the gospel to yourself? I'm not talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and just saying, well, he he died, he was buried, he rose again. No, I'm I'm talking about something much more tangible. For me, it's, it's, it's the idea of what we did in our tribe in Papua New Guinea. And of course, this took us nine months to teach. And I'm gonna give it to you in like three minutes. But but this is the gospel. This is the gospel really from front to end. That it all starts in the beginning. So to think of the gospel in a chronological way is a good thing. Why? Because we have to understand our need for saving before we can actually desire to be saved. And so we we go back to the garden. We go back to Genesis. And what do we see? We see God makes everything. And the crescendo of his creation is to make man. And he makes man and he breathes life into him. And then he tells him, hey, you can do anything except for this. This is the one thing you cannot do. You can't eat from that tree right there in the center of the garden, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you do, emphatically, emphasis, exclamation, exclamation, you will surely die. So he's got two choices. Don't eat and live, live and die. And what happens? We know what happens because our world is still wrecked from it. Is it not? We see it every day. Adam takes that which Eve had given him and he disobeys God. And sin enters the world at that time. And with it, death. And with it, all the destruction that sin brings into our world, into each of our lives. All of us see the implication, the result of sin around us every single day. And if that were the end of the story, we all would be dead in our sins. And we know what happens. God kicks them out of the garden. Why? Because God didn't intend for them to live eternally separated from him. And if they would have stayed there, they could have eaten from the, from the tree of life. But they couldn't because they were now dying. They had already died spiritually and they were dying physically. 
And that's why all people die today. And that's why also all people are born into sin. You don't get a choice. We know that from our little kids as we watch them. But then the most amazing thing happens. God becomes man. And he steps into our world and he lives a perfect life. And he does what only the Old Testament sacrificial system could just kind of point to and give us a really hazy understanding of what it is to truly pay for sin. And what does he do? He hangs on that thing right back there, the cross. And he, and he physically bleeds. Those are real blood, real droplets, no, streams of blood. And he, and he really is disfigured. And he really is a man that doesn't look like a man. And it's real. It's all real. And he dies. Not from the cross. Not from the spear. Not from anything but from your and my sin. He dies. But that's not the end of the story. Because in three days he rises again. On that glorious morning where all the angels must have gathered around, rejoicing over the fact that he was alive. And they come running to the tomb, thinking he's dead, but he's not dead. And they touch him. Why? Because he's alive, and he's physical, and he's real, and he's a person like you and like me, but he's perfect. And he does what none of us could ever do, or what the sacrificial system could do. He atones. He pays for sin. Finished as the propitiation for our sin, meaning God was pleased with his sacrifice. That's why he raises him from the dead, to give a crescendo, an exclamation mark. I am so pleased with what you did. Why? So that all those that would come and believe in him would have eternal life. And if there's any time where you should say amen this morning, it's right there. Amen. So that we would believe and that we would enter into life, and we would know what life was really to be lived like. And yet all of that is really just looking at it through an, a, a glass that's, that's kind of murky, because we can't really see exactly what this is right here, right now. We're trusting it by faith. And where Paul is at is he was looking at this going, oh man, I am there tomorrow, so please hold on to me, Timothy. Follow me what I'm saying to you. Be willing to go through whatever you need to in order to preach this glorious gospel. And then as you get to that point, then you would encourage someone. If you were to die today and you stood before the Lord God in heaven, and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? It's because of him not because of me. And I thank you so much for sending your son that I could have life and I could have it eternally because I recognize what an incredible sinner I am and how fall, far short I fall continually, day in and day out. But by your grace, I am saved and only by your grace. Let me pray us out as Pastor Shane and Brad come out, come up. Heavenly Father, that is your glorious gospel. There is nothing sweeter for us to talk about. There is nothing sweeter for us to, to share. There is nothing for, sweeter for us to remember. Help us to remind ourselves of all that we have in you, Lord Jesus, and the price that you paid 
we thank you that you are a person. And that one day we will be united with you as Paul has already been. I pray for anyone here this morning who does not know you as their Savior. That you would open their blind eyes. That you would give them ears to hear, Lord. That they might respond to your wonderful good news. That you came and died upon the cross. You lived a perfect life. And that only through you is true life found and his forgiveness of sin offered because you suffered and because you rose again. We worship you this morning and we pray now as we respond in song that you would fill our hearts with joy and eager anticipation of what will be ours when that time comes as it's already come for the Apostle Paul when our faith will be turned to sight. In Jesus' name, amen.